Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but, with, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a memory I will never forget. It was the inaugural evening at the beautiful Kauffman Performing Arts Center in Kansas City, where Liz and I had the opportunity to participate in the very front row of Handel's Messiah's first performance in that beautiful auditorium. I'll never forget walking in, seeing Hellsberg Hall jam-packed. It's beautiful architecture, it's near-perfect acoustical design. We sat on the front row and as Michael Stern, the conductor, came out along with the Tabernacle Choir, there was a moment of pin-drop silence as he lowered his baton. We all sat in that marvelous masterpiece of Handel, the Messiah, and sat quietly with rapt attention. But there was a moment when all of that changed. And that was the moment when Handel's Messiah Hallelujah Chorus emerged. And the words blared throughout the entire auditorium. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And as those words were declared across that beautiful hall, instinctively, all of us rose to our feet. Now, what is it about these words of Handel's Messiah that has been taken from the New Testament book of Revelation? What is it about them that have arrested the hearts and minds and bodies of millions of people throughout the centuries and have brought every audience to its feet. If you have a Bible with you today, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. And as a church family, we've been exploring this remarkable book of Revelation. And let's recall first where we are in John's letter to seven first century churches. Back in chapter 6, we encountered the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of the Lamb is unleashed. So in the following chapters from 6 on, we encounter this, what has to be a dynamic interplay of the Lamb's wrath, the church's witness, and then periodically, we will experience a microburst, a kind of standing ovation of heavenly worship. Now, let me warn you, as we come into this section today, one biblical scholar describes where we are in this literary terrain in chapters 8 through 11, quote, this section is perhaps the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire book of Revelation. Now, doesn't it encourage you? 
So let's dive in and let's begin to navigate this difficult but beautiful literary terrain. And to do this, I'd like to first have us do a brief flyover. So in chapter eight, it begins with the opening of the seventh seal of the scroll. Then we encounter seven trumpets. Now remember, seven is the perfect number repeated all throughout Revelation. Six angels blow their trumpet, and we will see in chapter 11 later, the seventh trumpet emerges. Now, when we hear the word trumpet, we may have something different in mind than John. John thinks of the Hebrew shafar, which is like a ram's horn. It was used to sound an alarm for a community in times of war or danger. And sometimes it was also used to call people in a good way to the Sabbath rest. Also, you'll notice in a flyover, there are three woes. Think of woes as warnings of doom, impending doom. And they're peppered out through this section, chapter 8, 9, and then 1 and 11. So watch for that. The woes help us keep in mind the big idea in the midst of all the symbols and all that's going on, the big idea of the wrath of the Lamb. And it is being unleashed on the earth with devastating, scorched earth realities. Uh, we will see tribulations, plagues, demonic forces. You get the idea. Titanic clashes. In chapter 10, then we have a bit of an interlude, which is really surprising to us. It's the appearance of another scroll. Now, this scroll is not like the earlier scroll. This is a very small scroll. And here we have the echoing of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Like Ezekiel, John is asked, get this, to eat this little scroll. Now, not because he needs physical nourishment. The idea here is, is it gives him spirit unction and validates his prophetic call. So keep that in mind. Now, before examining chapter 11, where we're going to focus mostly today, uh, I want us to remember again, in perhaps a different way, the unique literature we are encountering. This is apocalyptic literature. And one way to sort of understand this with all its symbolic images is to think of our text today, particularly chapter 11, like the painting of Van Gogh's Starry Night, one of his most brilliant masterpieces. And contrast this in our mind with the latest clear picture of the Hubble telescope of the sky above us. This contrast helps us understand the literature. There are many symbols and images of Revelation, right? They're depicting very real realities, but they are doing it with symbolic descriptions. And again, like Van Gogh's Starry Night, he is painting something very real, isn't he? The night sky over France, in his case. But he's using the medium we call a kind of post-impressionism, technically, to communicate more than the photorealism of our time ever could, such as the Hubble telescope. In other words, an artist will do this with the goal of not just communicating facts, but communicating meaning. Now keep this in mind, not just, John is not just informing us about the sky above us, right? Uh, but he is capturing the imagination like Van Gogh with beauty and meaning and significance of it. And this is what John is doing. So keep this in mind as we go across and look carefully at his literary canvas. In other words, I think most of us in the 21st century want to say to John, I have many times, John, why did you just say it plainly? It's so hard to interpret. John, just say it. John, just give me the facts. And most of us want a timeline, okay? But that's not where John is. John's literary goal is not just to inform us. He does that in a very distant way. But rather his focus, if we remember the first part of the book of Revelation, is to reveal more who Jesus is. That's the primary purpose. 
but also to form us into greater Christ-likeness, and now specifically to encourage us as his followers for steadfast faithfulness. And let's keep in mind as we enter in, we are dealing with highly symbolic literature, and we need to be very cautious about reading the symbols in these chapters as physical descriptions. You know, you're going to love this, and I encourage you to read it this week. Locusts or like horses with human faces, teeth like lions, tails like scorpions. They show characteristics of the indescribable. They are powerful, swift, intelligent, fierce, and they are capable of intense mental and spiritual torment. They capture our imagination. So keep that in mind. So let's dive into chapter 11. I'd like us to see three evidences of Christian faithfulness, three evidences of Christian faithfulness as we look closely at chapter 11. First, what we see is a bold witness. Now, if you have your Bible open, following this symbolic description of the temple of God being overthrown and trampled by the nations, John's primary imagery occurs in verse 3 here. Notice, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, what is John describing here? As you can imagine, there are so many interpretations, but two main ones emerge that sort of set the trajectory of the entire book, however you hang your hat here. One describes the future of the nation of Israel with two unique future prophets that will emerge one day. And the other interpretation describes it as the faithful witness of the church across the entire church age from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. So where do I land? Let me be clear. I believe, based on all of Scripture and the writing of Revelation, that the latter interpretation is preferable. So that's where I'm going to focus. My sense is John is using these two witness imagery and the number 1,260 in a symbolic way. That is, to paint a picture of the bold and intense and powerful witness of the church throughout its entire church age, extended period of time. And let's remember this word prophecy, which emerges in verse 3, is not in the Bible primarily about foretelling the future, so keep that in mind. It does do that sometimes. But rather, its primary focus is proclaiming truth, the word and person of truth to the world. So by its very nature, John is telling us here in apocalyptic ways, the church is not only a distinctly called out people, it's ecclesia, but it is a witnessing people. This is important for us to grasp. When we read Revelation chapter 11, we need to keep in mind a text that centers the whole book and that is Revelation 1.5. Like Jesus, he, we are reflecting him, and John introduces Jesus as the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. Like Jesus, we are called to be like him and to be a faithful witness, yes, in the midst of opposition. So I want you to keep chapter 1, verse 5 in mind as we walk through 11. It, it is an echoing of this. And this symbolic picture John paints for us so vividly now in verses 4 through 6. You'll notice John describes the supernatural empowerment of these witnesses, these two witnesses I see symbolically, but to a religious and willfully blinded world that opposes God, his right and righteous reign. And let's recall Jesus' words to his disciples after his resurrection shortly before his ascension, recorded for us by the writer Luke in Acts chapter 1-8. Jesus tells his nascent church, 
a commissioning and an encouragement and empowerment. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now we know from the book of Acts in the first century history that this supernatural empower of the Holy Spirit came, but also with it came the bold witness of God's people and with it came persecution and opposition. They go hand in hand. Now during the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think captured well here for us the description of the bold witness of the church throughout the church age. Dr. King called the church to be a bold witness, unflinchingly speaking truth to power, especially government power. Now remember, John is writing in the context of the Roman rule. But Dr. King says this, and it's brilliant and timely. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club with moral and spiritual authority gone. Now, Dr. King's words, I think, are as timely to us today as they were in the 1960s. We need to grasp in this text that John is reminding us that the proclamation of truth is at the very heart of our mission in the world. Several years ago, I was at a conference with pastors meeting in Denver uh, under the tutelage and leadership of the late Dallas Willard. When Dallas Willard taught as a philosopher and as a teacher, let me just tell you, he wasted no words, and each word was carefully measured. And I still remember something he said on that day that I will never forget. Dallas Willard looked at us, pastors in the room, a small group of us, and said this. He said, the local churches you serve today are the last place where free speech is truly possible in our culture. And he paused. And then he said, steward it well. The church is to be a people and place of truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred, for his opposition to Nazi Germany reminded us that spiritual community is fundamentally centered in truth and no less. And this is what John is saying. The stewardship of the church's bold witness in the world is not without opposition. It's never easy. And it always requires humility, wisdom, courage, and discernment. I love how Eugene Peterson, the late pastor, scholar, and teacher, said it this way. And he's brilliant in what he says. He says, it's both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. It's both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. Now, fascinating, you may know this, but the bold witness of the church often leads to the suffering of the witness of church. And the Greek word here that is translated in Revelation chapter 11 for witness is martis. Now, you may hear an English word coming out of that. That's where we get the word martyr from. This is not insignificant. When the church understands its witness, it understands it first and foremost as a suffering witness, a bold witness that leads to suffering. And this is where John goes in this beautiful text of chapter 11. Look at verses 7 through 10. Here we see the emerging of a suffering witness on the heels of a bold witness. Look at me at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, 
that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Doesn't this sound like a horror movie? I mean, the vivid imagery I have, or maybe you do in my imagination, of this massive beast, this earthly tower of terror emerging from a bottomless pit. It's powerful imagery, isn't it? And this earthly tower of terror is filled with hate and demonic fury against the church. The two witnesses are martyred for their faith. They're dead bodies desecrated in the streets. And in verses 9 through 10, doesn't this surprise us? Instead of the nations mourning the death of these witnesses, they throw a massive party. That's the idea in the text. They describe them as those witnesses, the church that's been tormenting them. And they are rejoicing that the church has been eradicated and exterminated. That the church witnesses often a suffering one should not surprise us. Jesus said himself, right, that following him will mean that even those closest to us may reject us and some will hate us. The Apostle Paul says it clearly, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. It's not if, it's will. And it's true in our time. Do we realize that never before in the history of the church, over 2,000 years, have more followers of Jesus across the world been tortured, raped, imprisoned, and martyred for their faith than today? In places like Iran, China, North Korea, and several Islamic countries. And being faithful witnesses of Jesus means we stand and pray in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the globe. And we partner with one particular incredible ministry, Iran. The ministry is Elam that focuses on the Iranian region. Few places in our world today are more persecuting of followers of Jesus than the nation of Iran. But closer to a home, Christians also face persecution. Now, we may not be imprisoned, at least yet, but the church is increasingly marginalized. It is increasingly open to ridicule. It is increasingly facing cultural hostility in our own nation. A friend of mine recently told me about losing a job because of his Christian convictions and ethics. Others have told me, many times over the years, and increasingly recently they've been overlooked for a promotion because simply of what they believe. At a conference a while back, I heard the testimony of the former fire chief of Atlanta. His name is Kevin Cochran, and he shared a story how he was terminated by the mayor, not because of his work record, which was stellar, but because he wrote a book in his off hours that affirmed that affirmed a biblical sexual ethic and marriage between a man and a woman. This is not uncommon in our time, even in our nation of America. So today, the true and faithful church finds itself in the tense intersection of personal conscience and religious freedom and the state's increasing commitment to non-discrimination particularly in the area of gender, sexual identity, and marriage. And with a growing secular progressive worldview, true biblical Christian faith, not progressive compromised Christian faith, is simply not tolerated by many who speak of their great tolerance. 
from the public square, the local church, as well as individual Christians are now being increasingly marginalized. They are increasingly being dismissed as backwater, even demonized, and sometimes portrayed as hateful, bigots, discriminatory, and dangerous for what is deemed intolerable beliefs and dangerous religious dogmas they hold. Now hear me carefully. I share this not to stoke an exaggerated persecution complex, which is irresponsible and all too common. But it is important to remind each of us that the Christian faith we embrace and the exclusive truth claims that we hold with their ethical implications is increasingly rejected in our culture. And what this means for you and me is that our faithful witness in the days and years ahead might well mean an increasing persecution, and suffering. Now, Luke Goodrich, who is a lawyer at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, who has won several historic Supreme Court decisions in favor of religious liberty, which is encouraging, has written a recent book that I commend to you. It's entitled Free to Believe. The subtitle is The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. Now, listen to what Luke Goodrich writes. We need to abandon the idea that just because we're Christians in America, we deserve a privileged place in society and that we will never suffer for our faith. What important words for us. No matter what we experience now in the future, you and I need to cling to the promise that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus will build his church and hell itself will not stop it. Jesus' hopeful words in the book of Matthew frame a helpful backdrop to what John now describes as we move to verse 11. Up to this point in chapter 11, things are looking really bleak, aren't they? The two witnesses are down for the count. But as we will see, they are not out. A hopeful witness now begins to emerge. A microburst of hopefulness emerges. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. You see how John paints a picture of a glorious resurrection from the dead. Now, that is about as big of a dramatic comeback as you can get. That even beats the Chiefs' Super Bowl comeback, right? And Mahomes' magic. This is like big-time resurrection. And notice the celebration is not unlike a Super Bowl celebration of triumph in the following verses. There's great fear. There's this loud voice from heaven. There's a great earthquake. All these symbols point to a glorious victory. A victory snatched from the jaws of what appeared a certain defeat. Like Jesus who overcame death, the church overcomes death and is resurrected to new creation life. And as we read this verse, and as I said it, the entirety of chapter 11, we have to keep close in our mind Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, where John introduces us with three descriptors that frame this chapter. Jesus is not only the faithful witness, but he's also the death-defeating one who was raised from the dead. He is, as John said, the firstborn of the dead. But he's not only the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. John's third descriptor in chapter 1, verse 5, now frames the rest of chapter 11. That Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is thematically where chapter 11 leads us. Notice, beginning in verse 15, we find this glorious crescendo. The seventh trumpet, or shofar, is now blown. There's this micro-hope of heavenly worship. And it's unveiled before John's awestruck eyes. Look at me at verse 15. 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, or Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. The words of this heavenly song focus on Jesus, the messianic lamb, his glorious victory over the rebellious kingdoms of this world, his righteous judgment, and his reign over earth. Jesus is the King of kings, the ruler of kings of all the earth. He is the reigning king forever and ever. And this antiphonal refrain shouts throughout time and space. This heavenly song of praise, also notice, do not miss this, anticipates the great reward coming to those who remain faithful in their witness, even in the midst of the most egregious suffering. So John wants us, as we come to the end of chapter 11, to grasp with all our being, heart, soul, mind, and body, a truth to wrap around us for our time. And that Christian faithfulness may mean suffering and difficulty, but it will be greatly rewarded. And John reminds us of this truth. For the Christian, for the faithful witness, suffering never gets the last word. Jesus always does. Revelation chapter 11 is difficult to interpret. In the midst of all the symbols and imagery, something is not difficult to discern. And that is the question that hovers over the text for you and me today. A question of reflection. It's a question that asks, as followers of Jesus, the faithful witness, are we a faithful witness? A faithful witness embraces at least two realities. A faithful witness is bold and patient and they go hand in hand. So let me ask first, for you and me today, is our witness bold? Is your witness bold? What is a bold witness? Sometimes I think we miss this. A bold witness has a humble posture. It is multifaceted. It is timely in its approach. A bold witness is not a bull in a china closet. It is not brash, unkind, or arrogant. A bold witness, as the scriptures tell us, speaks the truth, but in love. And its zeal is tempered with wisdom and knowledge. A bold witness at its heart often includes you and I sharing our story of transformation in Jesus, of letting others know how Jesus has changed our life and how you are committed or I am committed to follow him and what Jesus means in your life and my life every day. So think with me for a moment. Who has God brought into your life? And will you share the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel with them? For several years, I served with a Christian ministry devoted to reaching college students for Jesus. And I love the definition we used for being a Christian witness. So it simply said this, we take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we leave the results to God. It may take courage to speak. And yes, in speaking, you may feel, as I often do, uh, fearful. You may wonder how others will respond. And yes, the possibility of the sting of rejection or relational distancing is very real. The Apostle Peter helps us frame a faithful Christian witness that is bold. We find this in 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 through 16. I encourage you to memorize this text. And Peter says, In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That means an apologia, not being defensive to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. But Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. 
A bold witness proclaims the good news of Jesus, lives the gospel truth, and offers it gently, respectfully to others, humbly to the world. A bold witness involves speaking out, and it involves addressing injustice. A bold witness is not only heard, it is seen. A bold witness is seen in our caring for the vulnerable and the marginalized. A bold witness is seen every day at your school or in your workplace or in your community or in your families, in your communication, in your speech, in your work. A bold witness is seen in a generous and loving, sacrificial lifestyle of loving our enemies. A bold witness is often seen in us taking that hard step toward forgiveness with someone who has hurt us deeply. And let me just say in our culture, presently, a bold witness is often seen before it's truly heard. Increasingly, it seems to me that more and more of our classmates, our work colleagues, our neighbors, our family members need to see the gospel boldly lived out in front of their eyes through our lives before they hear the bold gospel words we often speak. And let me just say, I think there's a lot of truth to this. There's a lot of research around this today that our present culture is looking at the church and not primarily asking the question, is what the church saying true? That doesn't mean the truth doesn't matter. But what they are asking in a majority is, is the church good? Is what it believes and does good? Are we in our Monday lives a persuasive apologetic, a persuasive confirmation, validation, of our Christian faith. That challenges me, and I trust it challenges you. Are we a bold witness in what we say and what we do? And particularly, are we taking the initiative to share Christ with others God has brought into our lives? A faithful witness is a bold witness. But it's also a patient witness. Are we waiting patiently? Now, timing matters, and a faithful witness must learn to wait patiently yet expectantly. Isn't it true that God has a very different timetable than we do? And sometimes that's hard. The Apostle Peter reminds us that to God, who steps outside and is outside of time, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. In 2 Peter 3.11, Peter looks to the future when God will set all things right, when everything sad will become untrue. And he concludes with this response as a faithful witness for you and me, that we are to live lives of holiness or wholeness and godliness. Notice what he says, waiting for the hastening and coming day of the Lord. Now, waiting for Jesus to set the world aright, for his kingdom to fully come on earth and heaven, is at times hard for me to do and I'm sure for you to do. And transparently, can it be wearing? Can all this waiting for God to set the world right be discouraging? And can it not foster doubt in our hearts and minds? Yet the book of Revelation reminds us throughout that a faithful witness must be a patient witness. But patient and patient witnessing means patient waiting. And patient waiting is anything but passive. Waiting faithfully is about a faithful presence in our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, and in the halls of government. 
A patient witness is an actively engaged witness in our world, in all dimensions of our world. But a faithful, bold, and patient witness is not about being a cultural warrior. Let me just say a word about this. The seduction of power, whether it is religion, fame, economic, or political, is a perilous thing for the church. The kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One, nor does it sit in the seats of Congress or the Senate or in the halls of the Supreme Court. Now, saying that, I'm not saying that these things do not matter. They do, but they don't matter most. Jesus calls us to wait patiently, not as cultural warriors seeking power, but as salt and light, apprentices of Jesus that display a non-anxious, faithful presence in the world. Now, as Luke Goodrich wraps up his book on religious freedom, he speaks such a wise word for being faithful witnesses in our time. In, cha in a chapter entitled, Let Go of Winning, I love that, chapter 11, he writes these words. Listen carefully. In some, he writes, Scripture calls us to radically reorient our thinking about suffering and persecution. He writes, we are called not to win, but to be like Christ. That means we expect suffering. We respond with joy. We fear God. We strive for peace. We keep doing good. We love our enemies, and we care for one another in suffering. In short, he writes, we don't try to win a cultural war. We try to glorify God by being like Christ. So let me ask you in closing, have you in faith embraced the good news of the gospel? Are you living fully into his kingdom? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? And if not, will you do so today? And are you growing in your apprenticeship with King Jesus, yoked with him as you serve him? This text reminds me more and more every time I look at it of the hope we have in Christ. Because without Jesus, there is nothing ultimately to hope for or to live for. But with Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, there is everything to hope for. There is everything to live for. No wonder. No wonder we instinctively stand at Handel's Hallelujah Chorus and our hearts cry out for the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen.